You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Well, good morning, everyone. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke, and thank you for joining us on Good Friday, such an important day. Uh, Every Easter here at City on a Hill, we love to remind ourselves of the story of Easter, of what actually happened, but then we also try to focus in on some of the characters that make up the story and try to see the story through their eyes. And so today I want to focus on someone called Mary of Bethany and to hear the story through her eyes. And we actually, uh, I want to go to a little story a week before Jesus' crucifixion. It's in John chapter 12, verse 1. You'll see it on the back of your sheets. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mary of Bethany is a beautiful character. There's a lot of Marys in the Gospels. There's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus. This is Mary of Bethany, a little town about a kilometre and a half from Jerusalem. And she's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. You may well have heard of these guys. They turn up a few times in the Gospels and they were very close to Jesus. Uh, Jesus had 12 disciples who followed him around everywhere, but there were certain people that he seemed to have an even stronger and closer relationship with. We're told, for instance, that John, who wrote the fourth Gospel, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it seems he had a similar relationship with this family too. In chapter 11, we're told Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's something special, a special bond between them. One writer suggests they were like an extended family for him. And every time he would come past their place, this was his home, somewhere where he could stay. And it's on one of those first visits that we meet Mary and Martha. You may know the story. It's from Luke chapter 10. Jesus comes to the house for the meal and the sisters are both doing their different things and we see what they're like. We see their personalities and what they do. Martha's rushing around trying to get everything ready But Mary is there seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Martha's a bit miffed by this. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I mean, you can kind of understand this, can't you? It would be like uh, your wife or your housemate or someone is uh, doing all of the chores, vacuuming, and you're just sitting on the lazy boy watching TV. And she here, Martha, is doing all of this work, but Mary is just listening to Jesus. Yes, she's listening to Jesus. That's a good thing. But surely she could wait until everything was ready. But Jesus actually praises Mary and gives something like a rebuke to Martha. 
Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is a rebuke, right? It's gentle, Martha, Martha. He doesn't want to crush her, but he does want to teach her something. He just want her to understand something. It's not wrong for her to serve like this. It's a way of expressing love for Jesus. But what he appreciates about Mary is that she has seen something even more important and even higher priority. You see, Mary knows that Jesus is constantly thronged by people. There's thousands of people all around him trying to get, uh, get near him, trying to touch him, trying to speak to him. And here she has him in her own lounge room. She won't waste that opportunity. She values this. She prizes every opportunity that she has to listen to Jesus, to speak to Jesus, because she loves Jesus. And there's something here about her character that we see. Here is a woman who prizes this Jesus and has this desire to learn. Perhaps she's a little absent-minded, but she's also serious-minded. She wants every moment that she can have with Jesus because she loves him. And that love for Jesus is seen again in the second time we see Mary in the Gospels. You probably know this story too. It's the death and resurrection of Lazarus. I'm not going to go into detail today because I actually want to look at it on Sunday. I actually want to see what's after this. You see, the, the passage that we just read immediately comes after the resurrection of Lazarus and the two are connected. The story of Lazarus is told in John chapter 11 and then just a few verses later, this story, it's sequential, I hadn't even realised the connection between them. But what's actually happening is they're having a meal together to celebrate the return of Lazarus from the dead. It's a party. It's this moment of uh, rejoicing because Lazarus was dead. I mean, he was really dead. He was four days dead, dead. But now he's alive again. And the people at this party had been at his funeral. They'd mourned for him. And now they rejoice that he's risen again. You can just imagine the atmosphere. There's laughter. There's joy. There's, there's movement. There's energy. There's questions. They're, they're asking Lazarus, what was it like to die? Did you see a big light? What was it like? In fact, Lazarus is probably not the only attraction. In Mark's gospel, we're told that this meal actually took place at the house of Simon the leper, or to be precise, probably Simon the ex-leper. He would have been healed by Jesus as well. R. Kent Hughes imagines Simon and Lazarus chatting, like, Simon, oh, mate, you should have seen it, Lazarus. I, like, I was so uh, broken by my leprosy. My skin was falling apart, and, and Jesus healed me. It was incredible. You wouldn't believe it. And Lazarus is like, well, have I got a story for you? Like, I wasn't just sick, I was dead. I went to paradise, I saw Abraham and I saw David, and, but the most amazing thing I saw was Peter's eyes when I came out of the tomb. Lazarus' sisters are there, of course. Martha's serving, but that's natural, that's okay this time. You can imagine Jesus smiling at her and she's bustling around making sure that everyone's bellies are full and their glasses aren't empty. It's this joyous moment. It's a celebration of life. But in the midst of it all, Mary has this strange premonition of death. You see, in the middle of it all, Mary does something quite extraordinary. She anoints Jesus for his burial. Everyone, we're told, is reclining at the table. In an ancient home, people would, wouldn't sit at the table. They'd sort of lie down on their elbows with their, their legs stretched back behind them. And in the midst of this, Mary creeps up and in front of everyone, she takes 
a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, breaks the flask and anoints the feet of Jesus, then wipes uh, his feet with her hair. There's so much that's shocking about this moment. First is the, uh, what she's doing. Uh, to, in the ancient world, they had uh, uncovered roads, very dirty, smelly roads. And so anytime uh, you would come into someone's house, you'd have to get your feet washed. But this was the lowest act that someone could do, is the act of a servant. This is like uh, fixing the portaloos after the Melbourne Cup. And, and here, you would only, the, the lowest person would do it, a servant. And Mary is doing it. She's not a servant. She seems to be a woman of some, some wealth even, but she is lowering herself to do this. This is an extraordinary thing. But even more extraordinary is the way that she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. I mean, I think in, even in our day, this would raise a few eyebrows. It's a very intimate act, isn't it? But in the context of first century Israel, it would have been incredibly controversial See, in the ancient world, women would always wear their hair up and the only time they would let it down was if they were in front of their husband or if they were a prostitute. Mary's not that, but for her to let her hair down like this would have really caused a stir. But also, and this is the thing that really gets people talking, is this outrageous extravagance with the perfume. It was customary to anoint guests with a few drops of ointment but Mary grabs this whole big bottle, a pound, a litre, half a litre of, uh, of uh, ointment, and she breaks it and pours it over Jesus. And this is an expensive uh, ointment. It's from a, a rare plant, probably imported for all the way from India. In the other Gospels, we're told it costs 300 denarii. Now, just as a bit of context, the, the average worker would get, for one day's work, they would get one denarius. So 300 denarii is almost a year's wage. Just imagine that. Imagine spending 40K, 50K on some ointment, on some perfume, and then pouring it all out over someone. That's the extravagance of what Mary is doing. It's not surprising then that some people uh, get a bit upset. First among them is Judas Iscariot. We're not surprised by this. We know that he's selfish and he's, he wants to just sell the perfume so that he can get some of the money for himself. But it's not just him. It's the other disciples as well. Matthew 26, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Mark says that some scolded her like she was a, a foolish child. But Jesus has a very different reaction. He defends Mary. Leave her alone. He doesn't scold her. He praises her. She has done a beautiful thing to me. In fact, in Matthew 26, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus prizes this because he can see her heart. He can see something beautiful. But what is it exactly that he sees in Mary's actions? Well, the first thing I think is he sees an act of insight. That's how Jesus describes it in Matthew. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. You see, in Jewish culture, a person will be anointed with oil just as they were being buried, and Jesus is suggesting that that's what Mary is doing. Jesus understands that Mary knows that he's about to die. She grasps what is ahead for Jesus. 
And this is quite remarkable because one of the themes of the Gospels is how the disciples, the ones who were closest to Jesus, the ones who were being appointed to lead the church after he was gone, they never get it. They're constantly missing it. Jesus tells them plainly, hey, guys, I'm going to go up here and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And he says this plainly and they're like, no, 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 it's not going to happen. They miss it or they dismiss it. Peter rebukes him for even saying it. Not long, uh, just around this time, they're, they're going towards Jerusalem and they're all arguing, oh, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? This is going to be awesome. Jesus is going to be the king and they're jostling for prominence. They don't get it. They never get it. But Mary does. Ray Stebbin writes, it's interesting as you read the Gospels to note that many times Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die. It seems that not one of them believed him except Mary of Bethany. She believed him and she grieved for him even before his death. And that is what motivated her. She understood that he was moving towards his death and burial. And of all the friends who surrounded him at this time, only Mary had the sensitivity to understand what was happening. How did she get it? Well, remember her with the story with Martha? Where was she? Martha's rushing around the house, but where is Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. That was her position. That was her posture. That was how she approached everything. She always wanted to learn. She wanted to listen to Jesus. And so she heard what Jesus said, and she believed it. Despite the festive nature of the occasion, writes Bruce Milne, Mary senses Jesus' true spirit and feels in her own soul the chill of the dark waters in which Jesus must soon be immersed. She sees what is ahead for Jesus, and so she prepares for it. And that shows us, secondly, that this is not just an act of insight, but an act of love. I don't know, what would you give someone you love if you knew they were on the brink of death? There's no point giving them a book. They're not going to have time to read it. There's no point giving them something to carry with them, a physical object, because they can't take it with them beyond the grave. So what would you give them? Well, Jesus says that Mary did what she could. She gives him something that will carry him through death and go with him. Do you know there's some debate over where on Jesus' body Mary point, point, uh, poured the perfume? Uh, Mary, uh, John says that it's over Jesus' feet. But in the parallel account in Matthew, it says his head. The truth is she probably poured out so much perfume that it covered his whole body, head and foot. It was enough to cover all of him. Why is that important? Well, it's because it would have stayed with him. I can't remember exactly where I read this, but it was years ago. Someone pointing out that Mary pours so much of this ointment over Jesus that it would have covered all of him covered all of his clothes, seeped into his skin, and it would have stayed with him. It would have stayed with him all through the next week, all through everything that would follow. It would have stayed with him as the people gnashed their teeth against him and abused him. It would have stayed with him as the soldiers whipped him and assaulted him. He would have been able to smell it even as the crowd spat on him as he walked up Golgotha. And there on the cross, as the sun turned its face and the sky went dark, as he expired, 
he would have been able to still smell it. And in the midst of all of this hatred, he carried with him the reminder of Mary's love. Because that's what this was. It was an act of love. Mary did this for Jesus because she loved him. See how Jesus describes it. She has done a beautiful thing for me. William Barclay points out that there's two words for good in Greek, agathos and kalos. Agathos is something that is morally good. Kalos is not only good but lovely. That's what Mary does. She does something lovely because, Barclay says, love does not only do good things, love does lovely things. That's why she was so extravagant. People question her actions. This doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? This is so extravagant. But, of course, to Mary it made total sense. This is what she could do. And so, in fact, it was all that she had to do. She had to do this because she loved him. Love makes us do lovely things, extravagant things. Barclay says, love does not nicely calculate the less or the more. It's not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all it had, if it indeed it gave all the world, the gift would still be too little. Love gives its all. And love's only regret is that it has not still more to give. So let me ask, do we love like that? Do we love Jesus like that? The way Mary loved Jesus. That's what I want to want us to think about this Easter. Do we love Jesus? I mean, we all have some sort of feeling about Jesus, some sort of response. Everyone's heard of Jesus. He's the most famous person in history, massive, not just in Christianity but in Islam and even in the secular world. And everyone has an opinion of him, some sort of response. For lots of people, it's respect. You know, they often speak of Jesus as a great moral teacher. We read the Gospels and we see his wisdom. And we think that's really in- impressive. I'm, I'm, I want to respect him. But that's not enough. You see, Jesus isn't just a good moral teacher. What he taught, you see, is that he is the holy son of God, God himself. What he taught was that we are all sinners who've disobeyed God and fallen short of his glory and we have a broken relationship with him. What he taught was the reality of God's justice and unless that relationship is mended and repaired, then we face God's judgment. But what he also taught is that there is a way out of this. There is salvation, but only through him if we turn to him. You see, this is not just something to hear and to respect. This is not someone that we just kind of keep at a distance. This is someone that we must respond to. Respond to in repentance and faith and love. Our response needs to start with repentance. We're going one way, we're away from God, and then we turn back to him. We acknowledge our sin and confess it to him and resolve to live with him. We repent. And then we place our faith in him. We we give him our sin and we accept his forgiveness. We, We trust that he has dealt with it. We receive his love because that's actually what we're invited to do. 
Do you know, the story of Mary's extravagant love uh, reminds me of another story of Christ's extravagant love. Just one chapter later in John chapter 13, we have a story that, that mirrors what we've just seen here. The scene is another meal. This time, though, it's the last supper that Jesus has with his disciples, the, the one immortalised by Leonardo da Vinci. And again, we see someone washing feet. But this time, it's Jesus. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If it was jolting to see Mary wash Jesus' feet, it's almost inconceivable to see Jesus wash his disciples' feet. I mean, he is their teacher. He is their Lord. He is God himself, and he's bending down on the floor to wash their feet. The Apostle Paul, cringe, uh, Peter, cringes and he pulls back. Lord, do, not, you, do you wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. But then Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You see, Jesus is serving his disciples by washing their feet. But in doing so, he's actually pointing to something even bigger. He's pointing to an even greater, more humbling act of service, the way he will die on the cross for them. And the cleansing that he's offering their feet is actually pointing to the cleansing that he offers their lives and their souls, the cleansing from sin itself. You see, sin makes us feel dirty before God, doesn't it? We feel the stain of it, of our guilt, when we let people down, when we lie or stab someone in the back, or if we're selfish, we, we feel this. And when we come before God, we feel it even more. We, we know from Scripture that God is this holy, pure God. And when we come before him, we sense the dirt of our sin, the mess that we've made of our lives, and we long for cleansing. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We need, we sense the need for cleansing. And Jesus offers that. He offers to cleanse all of our sin. But we have to take that. That's what he says to Peter, isn't it? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If, if you don't let me wash you clean, then I can't. If Jesus does not wash us clean of our sin, we have no share with him. So will we let him wash us? Maybe that seems like a strange question. I mean, what would stop us? I can think of two things. The first thing is, Pride. If we're honest, we may not like the image of Jesus on the cross because it confronts us with our sin and it reminds us that we need him. At one level, it's the most humbling thing for him to be on the cross, but it's also humbling for us. It strips away our pride. So we don't want to need God. His death shames us. I think that's what Peter's struggling with here. 
He wants to be pious. He wants to be good. He's constantly throughout the Gospels trying to prove himself to Jesus. But Jesus is saying he has to get over himself. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I don't need you to be perfect. I need you to ask for me. And we are the same. There could be pride that stops us coming to God. We want to impress him. We want to bring a collection of all of our good deeds, all of our self-respect. We want to show that to him. But it's never going to be enough. Romans 3, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous. No one does good, not even one. And so we have to get over ourselves. We need to acknowledge our sin and ask him to cleanse it. So pride might keep us from Christ's washing, but there's another thing that might keep us from coming to him, and that's shame. You might think that Jesus wouldn't wash you, that you're too sinful, too broken, too far gone, that there's no way he could love you. But he does. Just think of the disciples. All through the Gospels, we see them stuff up and do the wrong thing and really show an incredible lack of sensitivity, wisdom, humility. On the very night that Jesus washes their feet, Judas will betray Jesus. Peter will deny Jesus. The rest of them will desert Jesus. And yet even knowing that is coming, Jesus washes their feet. And so he can wash us clean too. When Jesus went to the cross, he took all of your sin with him. He carried our filth. He wore our rebellion. He clothed himself in our mess. And now he offers us spotless, clean clothes so that we can stand before God washed and sparkling with no blemishes to hide, no stains to cover up. This is what God offers us. And if you've truly experienced this, you will love him for it. See, Mary's response, our response should be repentance and faith, but also love, also deep and true love. Sometimes I think we can almost have this transactional relationship with Jesus. We come to him, we give him our sin, we take his forgiveness, but then we just sort of walk on and we hardly think about what he's actually done. We don't actually engage and interact and relate to him. We don't, our heart doesn't bond to his. We don't love him the way we could. Or sometimes perhaps we, we feel it at first, you know, that moment where you first came to faith and you felt this surge of relief, the deep and profound sense that you have been saved. But then since then, maybe life has just kind of got a little bit more normal. Maybe some of the sins that you brought to Jesus at the start, they're gone. They've con- you've conquered them by God's grace. And, and actually you feel like you're doing pretty well. You're doing okay. It's not as obvious to you how you need Jesus. And so you've lost some of your affection for him. So how do we kindle that? What inspires not just respect, not just thankfulness, 
but love. I think ultimately it's an understanding of Christ's love for us. See, it's so beautiful the way John introduces the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. John 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when John, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. It's got a dual meaning of time and extent. He, he loved them to the end of his time on earth with them, but he also loved them to the end of himself. He loved them with everything that he had. He loved them completely. Do you realise that? Do you see how much he loved you? He loved you so much that he bent down to serve. He made himself nothing. Though he was God, he emptied himself of his glory and took on the form of a servant and gave his life for you on the cross. That's how much he loved us. That's how much he loves you. And it's my prayer that this Easter we will love him just like Mary of Bethany did. He was someone who wasn't just sort of thankful for Jesus, but she actually truly, deeply loved him. So she sat at his feet listened to his teaching, she, she followed him around, she sought to learn from him. And when she had the opportunity, she poured out her love in this wonderful act of extravagance. This Easter, love Jesus. Love Jesus like Mary loved Jesus. Love Jesus because he's loved you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this extraordinary story and this wonderful woman. We thank you for her faith, for her repentance, for her humility. We thank you ultimately for her love. She loved you because she saw what you had done for her and she wanted to praise that, wanted to celebrate that. Lord, give us hearts like hers. May we feel our sin and then feel your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.